When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of amazed it stuck around in a wonderful way. Just sort of being, it was a, it's hard for me to separate the experience of making it with the object, right? I love the object and I'm so proud of the object, but I think the thing that's incredible to me is that people are literally still talking about it. I mean, you're doing this, this incredible podcast and it, and I think also part of it was when the film came out, we got some good reviews, but we came out in March and we didn't make much money and we didn't there. So it was, it was seen as a failure, you know, really, I mean, sort of commercially, certainly, and not critically, but it just kind of didn't, you know, it didn't stay in the conversation. It wasn't an awards picture. It wasn't one of those. And so to have it have this life since then has been just such an incredible thing for me. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, who introduced today's episode. The film, of course, stars Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and rate and review the show wherever you're listening and to let you know that the links to our Patreon with uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews with guests of the show and our merchandise from Brianna Ashby and Amy Reid are in the descriptions below. Joining me today to discuss the introduction of the man who inspired Bullet and Dirty Harry, Dave Toskey, played with heart and care from the incredible Mark Ruffalo, our senior contributor at Film School Rejects, Meg Shields. Oh, you mean... The second best comedy about the serial killer. <laughs> What's number one? The House the Jack built. Oh, yeah. Host of Prog Save America podcast, writer at Movie Phone, former editorial and brand manager for Netflix Film, the force behind old films Flickr, and the inventor of November, Mariah Gates. And what I think is really clever about the screenplay is that they take these details and they, they pepper the specific details, they pepper it into the dialogue in a way that doesn't feel expository. And returning, film critic at The Ringer and Cinemascope and author of essential movie books, The Coen Brothers, this book really ties the films together. And the recently released Paul Thomas Anderson masterworks, Adam Naiman, film critic and editor at large of Empire Magazine UK, co-host of the Empire podcast, and author of Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, Helen O'Hara. Filmmaker and screenwriter of Rounders, The Girlfriend Experience, Ocean's 13, and co-creator and showrunner of Billions, Brian Koppelman. 
theatre director, playwright, film critic, and host of the Ink and Paint podcast, Daniel Lamon, and award-winning screenwriter and auteurist podcasting mastermind, Lee Zachariah. This is the fifth episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Aquarius Part 1. And the theme, in part thanks to Steve McQueen's 1968 classic being based on the character that Mark Ruffalo is saying here, and the devastating punctuation of the life of Paul Stein at Washington and Cherry, is Bullet. And now, a reading from Robert Grace and Zodiac about the two central men we're focusing on in this scene, Dave Tosky and Bill Armstrong. Steve McQueen met with Tosky before filming of his 1968 movie Bullet, which was set in San Francisco. McQueen had a duplicate of Tosky's special holster and gun made up and based much of the character on the Italian marina-born sleuth. Tosky was a compact, muscular man with dark eyes and a strong bow-shaped mouth and cleft chin, all dominated by abundant curly black hair. Over the years, he tried not to bring his case problems home with him, but when the solutions remained elusive and haunted him, he would drive the length of the Great Highway or take midnight strolls through his Sunset District neighbourhood. And sometimes, after a particularly tough day, Tosky would come home to Carol and his three preteen daughters and lounge in his big brown leather easy chair, put a big band record on the stereo, usually Artie Shaw's greatest hits, and sip a Manhattan while singing along as he'd done at Galileo High School when he was a California street bartender. He had considered music as a career. He became a cop instead. Tosky's senior partner was Bill Armstrong, tall and handsome, reminiscent of Paul Drake on the old Perry Mason television show. The 40-year-old Armstrong had sharp features and a strong jaw, his face framed by a curly brush of silver hair and glasses he sometimes wears. His tasteful business suits and short hair are a contrast to the darker, slimmer Tosky. Armstrong was also a father of three girls, and tried not to bring his caseload home with him. Lately, this has been pretty hard to achieve. Before we get started, here's film critic and author Adam Naiman reflecting on his first impressions of Zodiac and how years of revisiting the movie have only added to his admiration. You know, this is a movie that when it came out in 2007, I was reviewing for a, an alt-weekly in Toronto, now defunct, called iWeekly. And uh, this was like a Wednesday night press screening. And I reviewed it. And considering the writing I've done on Zodiac since and some writing I have impending on the movie, which is as coy a hint as I'll give uh, (laughs) to a larger project I'm working on, uh, I think my original capsule review was like a three out of five. And I think that when I reviewed it, I said something to the effect of this is a movie of remarkable density. And I'm not sure that density equals depth. And if anything, subsequent years and viewings proved that not only does density equal depth, <laughs> but that this is a, a bottomless movie, you know? Yes. I think that all the rules apply about the tourism with this film, which is that there's a discernible style. There's a series of references in it that are very germane to David Fincher. The subject matter is in his wheelhouse, he, he, he exercises a lot of control over it, but there's also something about it that, and I don't want to say it transcends it as if the movie isn't good on purpose. The movie is very good on purpose. I think it's very, I think it's kind of great on purpose, yes. but it's also one of those movies that seems somehow to think or conjure or manifest something beyond its intentionality. Yes. You know, and without being a horror movie exactly, it's on the short list of the scarier movies I've ever seen because of the uncertainty and openness. And I guess the the thing I didn't get about it the first time, which is the 
the depth of it, the bottomlessness of it. And now, onto the scene. phone rings and a lamp smashes. This is an unwelcome middle-of-the-night phone call for Dave and Carol Tosky. Mrs. Tosky, Carol, played by June Diane Raphael, has done this before. She's immediately up, dons a robe, and heads for the bathroom on the way to making a coffee. This is not her first rodeo. What we're going to see later in this segment is the proficiency of Inspector Dave Tosky, played by Mark Ruffalo, in the crime scene. And in this brief glimpse, we're seeing Carol reflexively know what she needs to do to help her life partner. Whoever this is, you owe me a new lamp. Cabby's been shot three blocks in the Presidio. Mm-hmm. Well, it wasn't me. I've been with my bride all night. She can vouch. Go put on the Folgers. You'll pick me up? Let me just describe the lamp you're going to buy me. Ruffalo's Tosky is putting on a show here. The shock of the call, the breaking of the lamp, the instant wit and attitude. He knows who it's going to be. There's only one person at this time of his life who's going to make that call. The phone is his partner, Bill Armstrong outlining the scene. There's an exacting urgency in his assured voice, despite the hour. The autopilot, the surprise of the call, and the effortless transition into getting on with the job, we cut to Tosky driving. His car collects his partner, and it's moving before the door even closes. The rain-slick streets have a strange warmth there's a kind of baptism hangover, cleansed by nature's cycles, to shine. Here's Brian Copperman on the introduction of Dave Tosky. So I want to talk about the, the scene where we meet David Tosky uh, for the first time. Because, you know, he's awakened in the middle of the night, and, and the intros to the characters in this movie are really important. You know, David Fincher is clearly thinking, and I'm sure Jamie Vanderbilt too, that I haven't read the script. They're really thinking about how you want to meet these people. And just, it sets you up for believing that these cops are gonna solve this thing because he's woken up, but then he gets there and he's fucking on it, man. And the way the camera is um, solid, it's not moving camera. Then uh, when Ruffalo comes around the car, it's got a loose head, the camera, and it's almost going for kind of a handheld effect, like a loose dolly that brings him around the car. And then when he comes and looks at the feet, the camera's low and low angle and um, it is fixed again. And it is, uh, that's all intentional. That's all to create this idea that this guy is gonna um, impose his will upon this. We're moving with him and he's gonna, in this scene that's a nerd and he's gonna impose his will uh, on what's happening here. And, um, uh, and their ability to quickly you know, it's the regular cops that that moment. It's regular cops and robber stuff. Uh, you know, they're going back and forth about his, his birthday, and because it's your birthday, I'll do the body first, and I'll let you do the casing and all that stuff. But then the way that they are so good at the brass tack stuff that in the real world just is not going to fucking matter. And at <laughs> this this sort of hopelessness and 
um, you can, in a way, you know, I'm thinking about Vonnegut a lot lately, but in a way, it's absurdist. Uh, Fincher is saying you are in an absurdist wor world here in this movie because these guys are going about this as though it's normal, yeah. but there's nothing normal about what they're doing. And that is absurdism, right? That's like formal absurdism. Uh, conducting their day in the, in, as though they weren't in fucking Brazil, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but they are in Brazil. Uh, the movie Brazil, I know you know, the movie Brazil, uh, which people, if they haven't seen it, should go watch that movie. Uh, and so a procedural in the world of Brazil cannot work out well. And that's another thing that I think is important about this film, which is there are three or four different films, a totally unified tone, but then there are three or four different films here because there is a police procedural, a, a movie about journalists. There is uh, an office drama comedy, and there is a domestic movie. Yeah. And so there are four different movies uh, uh, and, you know, a serial killer movie. So five movies that I can think of off the top of my head that exist. So yeah, so each of these different um, movies I think in its own way is really absurdist. Perhaps the saddest one is the domestic one because Graysmith could have been happy because she's great. Yes. And um, and he becomes as obsessed as the Zodiac and he too ends up isolated and uh, was somebody who was a good father and had the capacity to be a good mate and, and all the temptations of power and fame and expertise and being included by the cool people, all those things eliminated any possibility of his humanity uh, in the end. And the sign of him losing that humanity is uh, losing his wife. And, and over and over, I think in, in the film, you see that the shining a light on the Zodiac the Zodiac doesn't just take the humanity of the people he kills. He takes the humanity of everybody who interacts with him. And, and I think you could substitute Donald Trump for the Zodiac in the same thing. <laughs> I just got to sleep. Suspects Negro male adult waltz on scene, locked off the cab and secured the crowd. Seriously, got to sleep. I lost feeling in my arm and everything. Crackers. The drive is a palate cleanse. Shooting the trivial shit. Both men fathers of three daughters begin discussing food. It's Armstrong that starts asking about sushi. You ever tried Japanese food? What do you mean, like teriyaki? No, like the urchin, raw fish. I'm eating it, Bill. I always wanted to try it. So why don't you? I'm gonna remember it. And unfortunately for Bill and Dave, They'll never get around to those treasured and trivial things. This case is an ear-all-consuming force, a black hole whose gravitational pull will alter their makeup. Here's Adam Naiman on the case that's about to swallow them whole. The movie is filled, and I'm 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 not trying, and I'm not stealing it. I'm citing it. It's from a piece that Ken Jones wrote about it, where he talks about the scene where Toski arrives at the cab driver crime scene. Yes. Right? and Ruffalo walks out of the car, and the soundtrack quotes, and this is very deliberate, quotes Charles Ives' composition, The Unanswered Question, which is a piece of modernist classical music or, or modernist art music that is supposed to speak to questions that can't be answered. So that's deliberate. 
And then the way that Jones writes about it is he he's imposing an awful lot on this as a critic. He's being a person watching a movie. Not everyone would have this feeling, but he says when that happens and Toski arrives at the crime scene, whatever happened in that cab and whoever did it is now as far away from him as the dawn of the universe. And that's incredibly airy. Yes. Kind of pretentious. Absolutely. You could just say, and, and, you, and, you, and both of those things are like. <laughs> yeah, you could just you could just as easily say, you know, when Hubie Halloween arrives home, his evening <laughs> is as far away from him as the dawn of the universe. I mean, I mean you, but but you pick and choose the movies that make you feel those ephemeral sensations. I'm gonna end it. Yeah, third this week. Must be end of summer rush. I got foot patrols going through the park. Dogs are on the way. David Fincher calls this one of the most important turning points in the case. It's Zodiac responding to and realizing the threat of his publicity. This quiet, affluent neighborhood in Presidio is roused by the carnival of police, motorcycles, cars, lights. People are watching the show unfold, edging towards interference. This, after all, is another violent act in the Bay Area. I got foot patrols going through the park. Dogs are on the way. The victim's name is Paul Stein. Except pronounce him at 1010. Suspect fired one shot to the back of the head. Driver's wallet, car kids are missing. How'd you know his name? Leroy there came down from Yellow Cap to ID him. Neighborhood's pretty high end for this kind of thing, so I already set up transport for the cab. Corners here. Any witnesses? Kids who called it in saw the suspect from that window. They hear a shot? In the commentary track. James Vanderbilt calls attention to the fact that it's the first and only scene of the film that's handheld. There's a scene debrief, the details come fast. Armstrong, the birthday boy, a fact that James Vanderbilt tells me was discovered during the research interviews with Bill Armstrong for the film, start chunking the information together like a tactile thing. The shift accelerates our heart rate imperceptibly. Toski is a hard taskmaster. He wants to berate the crime scene investigators for the source of the mistaken description that went out on the radio a now unfortunate disadvantage at the beginning of this wild goose chase. The crowd around the scene is something I notice. The well-dressed people following orders for the police cordoning off the area. The half-dressed folks smoking off in the distance. It's not often that violence like this is literally brought to your doorstep. The three-dimensional geography of the scene is being mapped out. Where were the witnesses who called it in? Where could there have been other people that saw this thing go down? Where are the possible escape routes? Why here? And is this just a cabbie robbery gone wrong? Something else. They hear a shot? No. We first saw him in the front seat, thought he was a drunk fighting with the driver. Oldest kid ran downstairs to get a better look from the dining room. Described him as a white male, glasses, crew cut, stocky, wearing a dark jacket. Wait, I thought someone said he was black. That's the description that went out to radio cars. Yeah, we already corrected it. Oh, well, that's good. You guys need anything else? No, get out of here. Thanks. Happy birthday. Wait. It's your birthday. Yep. That's great. Happy birthday. Thanks. Body or scene? It's your birthday. I'll take the body. Hey, it looks like you wiped the cab down pretty good. We got some blood over here. Prince? Could very well be. We'll dust it at the hall. The odd thing is, we also got gloves. Suspects? There's blood on them. Hey, Pete? Yeah, Dave. You throw over there? Can I get in there? Yeah, I'm all set. Here's Mariah Gates, 
former resident of San Francisco, on the phenomenal rendering of the location. There's a lot to say about this movie. I was thinking about uh, when I was preparing for this, I was thinking about like the first time I saw it and uh, it came out when I was in college and I missed it when it was in theaters and I don't, I don't remember why. I actually have, have no idea. It, it was a March movie, so it was probably during midterms or something. Um, and then the, the DVD came out and so I um, rented the director's cut DVD, right? And obviously it blew my mind and I was then very mad that I missed it in theaters and then very mad that it got completely shut out of the Oscars because that was a big part of like my movie going persona <laughs> at that time. Um, and then I couldn't afford to buy it because I was in college and poor, right? <laughs> and um, the the student health something was doing, I hadn't thought about this in years. This was like 15 years ago um, or two, when, 12 years ago, whatever, whenever 2008 was, they were doing like a um, survey where it was like every week you filled out a survey about whether you washed your hands. <laughs> that was the whole survey. It was like, how often did you wash your hands? Blah, 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 blah. And um, it took, I don't know, five minutes a, a week. A very 2020 and sounding every, survey, by the way. <laughs> I know, I know. And every time you filled one out successfully, you got a $5 Amazon gift card. And it was over, I think, two months. And so by the time it was over, I had like $40 or $50 in Amazon money. And I yes. bought, <laughs> I bought yes. the Zodiac Director's Cut 2-Disc Edition. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've watched it 8 million times since. <laughs> I used to live in San Francisco. Oh, really? And... Yeah, and I lived right I lived like three blocks from where the cab driver got picked up. Where they picked him up was on um, Geary, and yes. that's where I lived. And so I was rewatching it with that in mind. And then I read the books like in that apartment, and it totally freaked me out because the books are, you know, like massive, super long. I think it's like a thousand pages when you read them back and to very, back. And very, and very, de very detailed. But Zodiac and Zodiac on Mars, he gets to. You know, essentially yes. they're the same book, but they get to say a lot more of the things that they had to withhold yeah, for fear and, of being litigated. And that even made watching that because at that point I'd seen the movie probably ten or fifteen times. So, you know, I bought the the disc with my <laughs> Amazon cards, and um, then I had to rewatch it. You know, with all of the little factoids from the the books, and then I and then you know I like there's two audio commentaries and like a feature length documentary. There's I think there's like forty hours <laughs> worth of extras on that on that disc, which it's a lot of extras for a 2008 release. Yeah. You know? And I watched everything on it after I read those <laughs> books. Um, Cause it's just, it's, it's a lot. And um, I don't know. It's a movie I go back to a lot, even though it's really dark, but it's really humorous. And I know, so I, I had never seen the direct, the, I'd only seen the director's version. And then, Later, when I was living in San Francisco, the second time when I was in grad school, um, they did like a David Fincher's San Francisco double feature, and it was The Game, Game. and Zodiac. And I had never seen Zodiac on the big screen, so I was like, oh, I'm going to go do it. But it, w it was not the director's cut. And, you know, they cut just little pieces, but some of it is the little humorous pieces that just slice the time, you know? Yeah. And so there were there was a couple of just like little, because obviously I've seen the movie a lot, there were a couple <laughs> of just like little moments that I loved that just aren't, they aren't in the theatrical cut because it, you know, he was like, okay, fine, we'll lose this little charming moment. And it's like, no. But San Francisco is like re really eerie. It's an eerie city because it's so foggy. Mm. Um, and the buildings are, are really old, like, it's a city that's really kept the architecture because it, you know, it had the earthquake and then they rebuilt everything. 
and then the bulk of those buildings that were rebuilt after the earthquake are still there. And so you watch something like Zodiac or you read, you know, the Hammett novels or something. And the way that it taught, the way the city is presented in the, those pieces of work is kind of how the city still feels. Yes. And so, you know, I moved there when I first lived there, right as I was getting obsessed, it was 2008. So it's like right when I was like in it at the beginning of being obsessed with this movie. And it was really eerie how similar, like, cause I had been in the Bay area prior, at least it went to Berkeley for my undergrad, but the Berkeley's not as foggy. Like it's the fog that really makes it such an eerie place. And yes. I think that he, in this film in particular, captures that really well. And and I actually didn't know that um, that crime scene in the beginning with, with Toski, they, they couldn't get permission to film in the actual neighborhood in the Presidio. And so they had to digitally recreate it. I didn't know that until I watched the special features. Um, but if you go to the Presidio, like they, they, they really did build that like digitally. <laughs> and it's, it's like, incredible. how did, how did that not get an Oscar nomination? They, they made a whole city block and it's perfect. Mariah is right. There were limitations on the filmmakers shooting at the Presidio, but they did get a chance with very limited timeframes to shoot parts of the scene, whatever they couldn't achieve within that a lot of time that I shoot. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply back on a studio lot, an augmented version of Washington and Cherry, draped in blue screen. The skillful and imperceptible melding of these spaces continues to impress. While films in the early 90s typify the synthesis of both practical and digital effects, Finch's experience and singular technical wherewithal achieves as close to an approximation of the period as any contemporary film. Fincher himself says, we recreated this period by faking it. Who rolled them? Stewards. Up. I got a single nine millimeter casing. Yeah, Luger. Nothing from the crowd. Okay, I'm your shooter. Negro male adult also happens to be a stocky, crew-cut Caucasian. I flag a cab. I give him this address. Then I give him this address. Who's got the prayer book? Right here. Washington and Maple. It's one block east. Toski walks out of the scene for a moment, appraising the previous block in the original destination. As he does, he looks through the audience and cuts a silhouette with San Francisco. Before we unpack the longing of Toski and Ruffalo in this moment, and Finch's influence has been worn on his sleeve. Here's Mark Ruffalo at an Academy Roundtable discussing his experience on the film, and then much later, a GQ reflection on inhabiting Dave Tosky. There was one take. We were like at take 85, and it it was a a big um, it was a big single and a walk and talk. It was like seven pages, 
And uh, it was one of my first days of work, and, and he, he started walking over to me, and I thought to myself, you know what, they're going to have to pay me anyway. <laughs> um, they got the wrong guy, and I know they got the wrong guy, and obviously he's finally figured it out. So it's fine, Mark, you did your best. And, and then he, he walked right by me to the, to the background guy behind me, and he moved him like two inches, and then he turned around and walked away and patted me on the back as he, as he went. And I went, you know what, this dude is like, I'm only 10% of the frame, and this guy's going for 100%. And uh, this actor's hitting his high spot at this moment. This actor's still lagging. And he is going to wait until we're all the best we could possibly be at that special moment when everything comes together. And then once you realize that's the trip you're on, then that's the trip you go on, you know? Mm -hmm. That's a part of that thing I was saying, is like each movie, each director, each thing, it has its own journey and its own style. And, and if you, I find the more I've given over to that, the less I suffer, the more fun I have. Sometimes you, you're making characters up, and sometimes you're, you're playing real people. And in that, I played Dave Toski, who I, you know, I was fortunate uh, was still alive. You're reading a script, and you get one idea of a person. You know, he's he's like this uh, hard-boiled, uh, you know, San Francisco murdered cop, and uh, I'm gonna play him tough. And then I said, well, I'd li love to meet. Dave Toski, and everyone was freaked out. Like, you really want to meet him? And I was like, Yeah, I want to. I want to go hang out with him. So, I took a commuter flight to San Francisco, and I went and met him. He was working in a little um, security firm. I went and spent the day with him. I spent a few days with him in San Francisco. I found that when you're playing other people, the best thing to do is to get them drunk or a little bit drunk because then that's when they really like open up to you. But you have to put yourself on the line too, so you have to tell some embarrassing stories about yourself first. But after a while, you know, he won my trust. I mean, he already looked at me like, who's this Hollywood kid, you know? What, what is he doing here? I really like created a, a nice rapport with him and um, really realized that my idea, my Hollywood idea of, of him was so far off from, from the truth, you know? And uh, wh who he was and, and, and the idiosyncratic uh, aspects of the way he talked, the way he dressed, even down to like eating the animal crackers, were so much more interesting than, than anything that I could have come up with. Ruffalo chooses the path closest to the authentic Dave Tosky, a man who'd already inspired Bullet, a man who'd already inspired Dirty Harry. And Dave Tosky's pop cultural influences don't just end there. Here's Meg Shields with her favorite bit of trivia about this movie. Which is my in to talk about my favorite piece of trivia that I've learned about this movie, <laughs> which is that the Tashi station, have you talked about this yet? The Tashi right. station in Star Wars New Hope, George Lucas named that after that detective. And David Fincher worked on Return of the Jedi. He was a a assistant cameraman on ILM. So I have my own cork board with red string in the back. <laughs> Trying to figure that out. Anyway, I thought that was hilarious. Cause of course me, a noob, I hear detective Toshi and I'm like, ha Toshi station. And then later. <laughs> back to the scene and Dave Toski inherits this burden. The unfathomable weight of one of the most incredible crimes in United States history. Him and his partner were handed one of the most sprawling ongoing investigations in America at the time. It ended up being almost in the history of unsolved crime investigations. And it all sort of fell on the shoulders of these two men. Zodiac has three protagonists. Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery, Jake Gyllenhaal's Robert Graysmith, 
And finally, the man we're introduced to in this scene, Mark Ruffalo's Dave Tosky. If you go to David Shire's score on Spotify, hidden within one of the unused gems, is a discussion between Fincher and the filmmakers and Shire himself. Fincher is lamenting that his intention was for Robert Graysmith, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, to be the heart of the film. But in fact, as he's assembling his movie, he realises that in fact, it's Dave Tosky. Let's hear him talk about it. See, I think the heart of the movie, unfortunately, it turned out not to be Jake, but it's Ruffalo. I really feel like, like, if this, if the strings was the context for murder and sadness and all that stuff and the hawk and the loss, and then to do something with the trumpet or French horn or whatever for Ruffalo, and then do, because the piano as a Jake thing. You know what I mean? So you can almost like take an instrument for a character and go, because I just feel like there's something, there's such dignity to that. There's like this kind of, you know, it always seems like, you know, it's, 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 you know, Claude Rains, you know, being tied to a, to a, (laughs) to a um, stake and shot, you know, or something, you know, has that sort of feeling of like a guy going down with dignity. I really want to... Which is a lot about what, who Ruffalo's character is. Yeah. And also that he's in... Or it's Alan Guinness at the end of, you know, um, Bridge on the River Kwai. It's like, you know, as failed and as as much as he fucked up, he tried. You know, and he wears that. I love that. I love the sound. Ruffalo's Toski is a tragic hero. A Sisyphus. And in the films that so incisively capture the anxiety of these hinge moments in our history, are characters that are up against it. They can't stop the world turning. Sometimes they're not even surprised. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like this? people like that's the best screenplay of all time it's like yeah it's 99.9 percent of the best screenplay of all time and then they (laughs) actually made it the best screenplay of all time by polanski just saying i actually know it should be worse (laughs) what an instinct instinct. everything should be worse she should not get away no you should not get blow, 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 blow her head off. Blow her head off. Kill her right. Kill her right here. And and actually, him having the instinct. It's like I think everyone's stepping on toes around Polanski at that moment because obviously he's him being at the the epicenter of this hinge moment in Los Angeles himself. It's like no, kill her. Yeah. That's what needs to happen. Yeah, and what isn't a, it interesting? It's fascinating. Amazing. Thing. And it's amazing with Chinatown because that's one of those movies for me the bad vibes in that movie do not like, it's not just a movie. No. It's like you put it on, you watch and you're like, you know what? I give up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, 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 I give up because that movie's view of the way evil works in the world is so lucid. And unfortunately pretty right. true. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it, it is, it is hitting. It's like one of those things, like a tuning fork, like it hits a frequency of in Chinatown and you're like, I don't know if the world needs to keep going on. I think we're good guys. I think it's done. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And while I'm, I'm walking off down the street and that, and it's a much shorter period of time that it passed in 74. I mean, now when you do a Casablanca ending, 
you're 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 doing something ancient. But I mean, Chinatown is like a visual quote of Casablanca, but it's not the beginning of a beautiful friendship. They're walking off down the street, and it's like they're never going to talk to each other again. <laughs> Nobody's ever going to be friends with anybody no. ever again. It's just no. the it's the worst ending ever, and it's the best <laughs> ending to any movie I've ever seen. Just as Dave Tosky is cut from the San Francisco skyline, he's also cut from the cloth of J.J. Giddis. Fincher, after all, is one of the biggest fans of Chinatown. Uh, lighting's the same over here, so uh, maybe I see someone walking the dog. You don't want any witnesses, so you tell them to go down the block. Pulls over. Away from the putting park, because I'm smart, and I don't want him hitting the accelerator when I shoot him. Yeah? He stops, puts it in park, boom. I shoot him on the right side, he slumps right. Maybe you've got your hand on his collar when you shoot. All right, so either way, I just dump a quart of blood in the front seat. So why do you get in the front seat? For the money. But he's dead. You could just reach over the seat, pull out his wallet, you don't have to go anywhere near the blood. So why do you get in the front seat? I'm an idiot. But you're not an idiot. You waited for him to put it in park. Thank you. Where did he stop? Why the cab driver? Why here? Was it here? There's an instinct on display to propose not only what was in the mind of the killer, but in the mind of the victim. Tosky and Armstrong are in the middle of an elaborate dismantling in the mind and motivations of an invisible man. Many Faber coined the phrase termite art. That so perfectly encapsulates the rationalization method this voyeuristic intoxicant. The cops collaborate to piece together any inconsistencies and each incremental step shows this microscopic viewfinder adjusting, clarifying, clarifying, clarifying. Here's Daniel Lemon on the entire disturbing scene. One of the scenes that really fascinates me about the first act of this film is the Stein murder, is the cabbie the, the, the cab driver murder. Mm. And the way that Armstrong and Tosky go through trying to piece the story together and the fact that the pieces of the story don't make sense. Like, why did he leave his gloves there? Why didn't he just lean over, like the thing, you know, why didn't he just lean over and grab the wallet out of his, you know, grab the wallet? There's a, there's like, like a pint of blood on the seat. Fourth fair of the night. Know, yeah, it's his fourth fair Why would he do it? But it's like, and he goes, you know, why did he lean over? Why did he put himself in the blood? Because he's an idiot, but he's not an idiot because he waited for the car to be put into park. But he is an idiot because he stole, he, he, he was the third, he was the third fair of the night. So there's no reason to, to, to you know, to do this but then why does he leave the gloves there and why does he leave a print there and it's because if he does that he might give them a clue you know he, i he, i hear he sends a you know i hear he sends a code key to vallejo just just to help this is a man who wants them to only be who wants them to be a few steps behind him if he's not a few steps behind him because the fact of the matter is and this is you know obviously this is a story about the loss of human life there's you know at least Four, five people that lost their lives at the hand of this figure. And this isn't to downgrade the human life at all. Nothing about these murders is, is unusual. Nothing about them is distinct. They are not Jack the Ripper. They are not the Manson murders. They are not any of the other serial killers that have, you know, that terrorized during the 20th century or the 19th century. They are very run of the mill. Like when they're investigating you know, the, the cab murder, they don't know it's a Zodiac murder. They don't know that this is special. This is routine with a few incongruous details that don't make any sense. 
if he doesn't tell them I did it, if he doesn't make them into theatrical performances, then he's not going to be remembered, which is very important to remember with the amount, because so much of the film becomes very, very intimate. But there's this great kind of mastery of the handling, not just with Fincher, but in Fincher's direction, but all aspects of the filmmaking from all of the, everybody involved, is that always there is a balance between you know, the fact that they're telling a story that is incredibly intimate about a very small group of people engaging in a very in a very rigorous exercise and enterprise and it's also one of the most thematically enormous existential crushing statements on the darkness of the human soul at the same time um i mean in a similar way to the way that all the president's men is as well i guess and then and i guess with hate as well of that thing of you know it has to be intimate in order to be epic and yeah. that moment that shift in tone tells us this is a big film this is a much bigger film than because the other thing that's so startling about it particularly for when it came out was you think you know, when you think about serial killer films you think about you know the sacred text of you know seven and and, and sons of lands but also this is coming off the back of you know a few years beforehand of films like saw so there's you know there's been a shift in it the idea that this can be enormous the idea of it being an epic is something very different. You don't think of many serial killer films or crime films really as being epics. And this, that shift makes the statement, this is much bigger than you think it's going to be. This is much more complex than you think it's going to be. Um, and this is going to be much more disorienting than you think it's going to be, which I think is a very important, very important clue that he gives us that early into the film. Discussing how she's chasing the dragon of this movie, while using Anthony Edwards as Bill Armstrong as an anchor, here's Helen O'Hara. For me, actually, it's it's somewhat been chasing your dragon or people like you, you know, because <laughs> I get I see so many people that I really admire and, and whose taste I really respect on Twitter and stuff, like just raving about Zodiac nonstop. Like it's been what thirteen years, still raving about Zodiac, and uh, and I'm and I keep being like, what did I miss? Like what did I not understand? And, and I do, like, I admire so much about it. I love the way it looks. I love the way, you know, the performances. I love the casting. I feel like if you've got all of these slightly um, fraying people at the center of your story, for example, you need like an Anthony Edwards who is just like solid, just completely and utterly reliable standing next to them. So you have a kind of a fixed north and you can see how completely crazy everybody else is going. So you need this stuff, and I think I think it's it's brilliantly balanced that way, and it's and it's brilliantly put together, and that sort of sense of creeping dread, even after all of the murders we definitely know about. I mean, they're all kind of done in the first what half an hour. Thank you. May I see that? Yeah. I am an idiot. I just killed a man for eight dollars and twenty-five cents. Just third fair of the night. Does anyone have any animal crackers? Animal crackers. They're in the car. I'm saving those for later. Are you a reporter? No, I'm Inspector Dave Tosky, SFPD. Uh, sir, I was wondering if I'd be able to talk to your children one at a time, and preferably alone. They just saw a man murdered. Mm-hmm, I understand. It looked like they were drunk inside. Tosky wanted us to talk to the children by the book, alone if possible. The father in the home creates great tension out of this moment. There's of course fallibility to witness testimony. There are a bunch of easily influenced children in shock from seeing their first murder. 
Toski doesn't get each child alone. Rather, he gets a cohort. Fincher composes the entire exchange with the young witnesses out of frame. Even care is taken to protect underage minors and witnesses to the crime. The kids are a chorus. It's a great technique. It's those that concern and cooperation and compromise of this fatherly figure in Toski. Mm-hmm, I understand. It looked like they were drunk and fighting. Yeah, and he had a rag. He came around the side of the car and he was wiping stuff. Did you get a chance to see his face? I did. Well, sort of. Do, do you remember what he looked like? Here's Brian Koppelman reflecting on Zodiac as a masterpiece. Well, let's start with the fact that it's a masterpiece. And I don't use that word lightly. You know, you've done Heat, which you often describe as a masterpiece of the genre. Yes. Right, even you, we, we talk about Heat as a, uh, the highest level of a certain kind of cops and robbers movie. Yes. And I guess in Sun, you've done all the President's Men, which is a masterpiece. Uh, in some ways, one could say that Zodiac is a cops and robbers movie. In fact, in any other director's hands, we would talk about it as a genre picture, serial killer picture, right? Yes. But in David Fincher's hands, with a script from Jamie Vanderbilt, with this cast of actors, with Harris Savidi shooting it, what you have is a masterpiece, period. Forget genre. I don't even think you can really talk about Heat as much as you know how much I love Heat. Yeah. But I do not think you can talk about Heat really in the same sentence that you can talk about Zodiac. I mean, for me, we're talking about the most disciplined director of his generation operating at the top of his game, dealing with so many of his obsessions and completely unwilling to compromise, yet not at all self-indulgent. One could talk about some of Fincher's later films as these obsessions perhaps in moments got the better of him. I mean, I love all his movies pretty much, except maybe there are two that I don't love, love, love. But in this film, as long as it is, there is a tremendous amount of authorial discipline at play. I guess one could say that the Belloy scenes, because they don't amount to much, one could cut out, except what they do give you is the hysteria, that even smart people bought in to the hysteria. Um, And part of what makes this a masterpiece, and if I contrast it with Heat for a second, again, Heat is a masterpiece of the genre, but Heat is like the fullest example of the thing that man was obsessed with. He often talks about the resourcefulness of guys with nothing else. But what Fincher is studying here to me is the confidence, the sort of um, misplaced confidence of the American male of the 20th century. Yes. And he attacks that with an incredible amount of power and focus. And you can look at the film through this lens of expertise masquerading as competence. And with a summation is Lee Zachariah, 
about the improbable comfort food of this examination of American masculinity. As much as any big studio film can reflect the chaos of our own lives, this one does. And as much as it can provide a resolution that isn't condescending and improbable and offensive, this one does. It's it's comfort food in a way that you would not expect. I mean, Fight Club is the most optimistic film I've ever seen in my life. It doesn't seem like that while you're watching it, but it is. It, it's the. It's absolutely optimistic. This is a, an incredibly comforting film. It's about a series of horrific unsolved murders, and it, it, it tells us that it's okay. You know, the world you're living in is as chaotic as you think it is, and there are ways to find resolve in that. There are ways to find comfort, and you can get to the end of the rainbow. And once you're there, you can you can move on with your life in a way. You know, it'll give you enough of a permission structure to to move on to the next thing and stop worrying about this thing that's been eating at you. I understand. It looked like they were drunk and fighting. Yeah, and he had a rag. He came around the side of the car and he was wiping stuff. Did you get a chance to see his face? I did. Well, sort of. Do, do you remember what he looked like? Mm, normal. Yeah. Normal. Like a metronome. The clock is ticking in that scene. The clock is ticking inside Dave Tosky's head. And the clock is ticking for us. Everything is wrong with this scene. Nothing is normal about this killer. This concludes episode 5 of Zodiac Chronicle, Aquarius Part 1. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all upcoming episodes. If you can't get enough, Unplugged Zodiac Sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Our companion I Am Not Avery Zodiac stickers were done by the talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Until next time. Good. Bye. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.